Hey everybody, it's Brian. Thanks for tuning in. If you're ready to buy or sell a home in Pierce, South King, or Snohomish County, please check out John Hurlbutt and his team over at Altitude Homes. John's an old friend and someone I know you can trust. He will also donate $500 to Ben's Fund for every closed transaction. I know how hard it is to find a real estate agent who has your best interests in mind. John can be that guy for you and benefit a great cause to boot. Check them out on the web at altitude-re.com hb. Again, altitude-re.com hb. Or give them a call at 253-222-2626. That's 253-222-2626. Go Hawks! Hey everybody, uh, uh, it's Brian Emhauser, and we're here for episode 49 of Real Hawk Talk. There's a ridiculous amount to cover tonight, and uh, with me, uh, back from a mini moon, uh, newly minted married man, I assume you're still married, Evan Hill? We are 11 days into it, and she has not called off the marriage yet, so... Dang. We're doing great. We're doing great. I had I had ten as the under, so um, you guys have already beaten me. So congrats on that. Yeah, massive milestone. Very thankful for it. And uh, as well, we've got a uh, at real Jeff Simmons uh, up there in Toronto, dude. I assume you're still in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Hope I wish I wasn't. <laughs> How you doing, dude? I'm good, man. I'm good. This has been a crazy day for us. It has, right? I mean, I was just talking with Evan before we got started. Um, we got so much to cover, but is there anything more interesting going on in the NFL than the Seahawks? I mean, think about not only the fact that the team's doing what the team's doing, not only the fact that they have the best action green uniforms in the NFL, not only that the receivers are doing the best celebrations in the NFL, not only that they've got an MVP caliber quarterback or one of the greatest coaches uh, uh, in NFL history and definitely one of the, great, the greatest in Seahawks history. Uh, but even their fans are the best in the NFL. Um, our very own uh, Josh, uh, known as uh, Cable Thanos, C-A-B-L-E-T-H-A-N-O-S underscore on Twitter blew up today. Uh, I was at work, like, and Evan's sitting here texting me, go to Twitter. Do you know what's going on? Go to Twitter. And I'm like, dude, I'm in a meeting. Just tell me what's happening. Uh, so, Evan, what the hell was going on? Yeah, so it's funny. I was sitting at a coffee shop around noon when, that, when you know, Cable Thanos starts blowing up. And Brian starts responding to me, I really can't check Twitter right now. And I'm like, Brian, you really need to check Twitter right now. It's <laughs> It's worth it. So I sent him a screenshot and, you know, it was obviously Russell Wilson uh, pumping up uh, Cable's video, which was really cool. And it, I don't, I really don't think we've ever seen anything like that. Um, it, it, it feels like we broke Russell Wilson's robot stereotypical, you know, persona on Twitter. So it, it, it was super cool to see. And, you know, 
if you've been living under a rock, a, under a rock maybe you missed it, but um, go watch his video if you haven't. It's super mm -hmm. awesome. It got picked up by GeekWire. He's been on Deadspin. Like he's he is definitely owning owning Twitter right now. Yeah. Um, so I was the one who told Josh that Russell <laughs> got to him. So we have a, we have a, for everyone who doesn't know we have a group thread that we all talk to each other and I wrote you guys a message like bunch of exclamation marks. I was I was kind of going crazy and no one responded. Not even him. well. And I'm like, what am I like? Am I seeing things? <laughs> uh, and finally, Josh gets back to me, and he can't believe what's going on. And then Russell kept responding to him. And Russell wrote him like three or four messages that just no one's been able to. Russell's, Russell's Twitter game is horrible. It's unbearable <laughs> at times. And today, he looked like a person. He looked like a fun Twitter guy. He was using GIFs. He was using, I don't know what crack, but we cracked Russell Wilson. It's probably the biggest accomplishment in Seahawks Twitter history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely Josh gets all the, the credit. Yeah, and, not we, Josh. <laughs> uh, you know, and and poor Josh, you know, he's sitting here trying to do, you know, do right by his schoolwork and study. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and now Russell's asking him for, like, you know, to just invent a video to hype them up for the Pro Bowl. Uh, by like tomorrow and uh, you know it's it's gonna be a fun ride for Josh I mean he's he's got a great voice in what he's creating he's got a really unique point of view he combines all sorts of like I mean amazing knowledge of Seahawks Twitter and just the general like conversations that have gone on here for years and all these pop culture references that are just like I I loved the uh, the unaccountability today. Oh, my, I think my favorite my favorite thing was maybe the Benjamin Albright <laughs> troll. For those that don't know, Benjamin Albright, uh, I don't know exactly what he is, but he's he's some like you know verified media guy on Twitter about the NFL, and uh, he had a quote. He had a tweet in the summer around something like somebody asked me who's going to have the first pick in the draft this year, and you know I said it's going to be the Seahawks. It was something like that, right, Evan? You know you've got it postered on your your account. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was who's who's going to have the first pick in the draft. It, he answered, it was the Seattle Seahawks, and he's gotten a lot of flack for it over the over the past few months, and and you know Seahawks Twitter has. Seahawks Twitter doesn't really forget things. We don't forgive and we don't forget is what I like to say. And we've kind of been poking him about it over the past few months. And it kind of eclipsed a certain, a certain threshold over the past couple of days. Yeah, he had a rough Sunday with you, especially. He was retweeting your old tweets. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you, you broke him. Can we, can we clear the air for a second, though? Because, like, I'm not a – I don't like drama. I, 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 Whatever. No, 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 no. Not in like a personal person to person uh, way. I actually really like Benjamin Albright. Like, I think he does really great work and he gets like awesome scoops way before anybody else. And, you know, he's been super accurate in the past. And I just don't, I, I felt like I was just poking good fun at him. Just like, you know, we all have bad takes and we all do to each other. My, hell, my bad takes get retweeted almost every single day. And, it, and it's fun to look back at. But, um, we got into it a little bit, and I think he thought I was coming across as snarky. Maybe I was. Maybe I wasn't. And um, he ended up blocking me today. So. I mean, I don't know if I've ever heard you come across as anything but snarky. 
Okay, fair. But 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 like the funniest part, I can't remember who said it on Twitter, but they totally got it right where they're like, does he realize when he's retweeting Evan's old bad takes that nobody has more old bad takes and cares less <laughs> about them being published than Evan? Like, I mean, you can pick your tweets from any given day and retweet them from like two hours ago, and most people would be humiliated by them. But you're you're pretty much you're embracing them. That's one of the things we love about you, Evan. Well, yeah. I mean, come on. We all we all you. <laughs> God, you got to be shameless about this stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, come on, man. He could have gone after like one of my food opinions, you know, like Indian food is bad. Asian food is bad. Both things are true, but he could have gone after me. Uh, no, we're know? not turning this into a food take conversation because that's going to go off the rails even more. But um, I have to say my favorite part of, of Josh's video was um, the Russell Wilson run, which is related to the Benjamin Albright thing. But that like, that was freaking brilliant. When Russell Wilson <laughs> takes off, and then he has Russell like running through all these things. I think he like runs down Benjamin Albright's throat <laughs> through his like colon or something. I mean, that was pretty. I don't know. I love that. Uh, did you guys have a favorite part of the video today? Oh God, maybe it's Schottenheimer like slapping like the the the, the, the duct tape on the. <laughs> God, I, God, I don't even know what to say. I'm so, I can't, I told you this, Brian, before the podcast, I can't process everything that has happened today. Like there's like, I can, can you imagine being Cable, Thanos or jo Josh right now? Like his popularity has like skyrocketed. You know, he's like an overnight, like millionaire. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, he should be. It's great. It's great. Uh, all right, Jeff, you can get us back on the rails here. We got, we, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll even maybe we'll get a bonus uh, Josh video out in the next day or so. We'll see if it all comes together. But um, man, there's there's ton to ton to discuss. Um, where do you want to start? Oh yeah, well, let's go back to the Vikings game. That was Monday night. Uh, kind of a bizarre game in the fact that pretty much it went remarkably different than any other Seahawks game this year with. A defense totally dominating the offense, having some incredibly bizarre, some bizarre moments, and it was a what three nothing game going into the fourth quarter. So what well, the Seahawks were able to pull it out in the end. The Seahawks were the better team all game and just kept shooting themselves in the foot or bizarre things were happening. But in the end, the Seahawks beat Minnesota. They're what ninety nine percent playoff now. Yep, they're pretty much locked in for the fifth seed in the NFC. So we'll start. We'll start with that. So, what stood out to you guys? We'll start with you, Evan. This okay. This is a little bit off track, but it was Frank Clark's comments post game. Did you get there. Jeff? You actually, Jeff, you were the one that pointed it out to me. Um, it kind of took a little bit to spread, but Frank Clark had some really interesting comments post game where he basically called out Richard Sherman a little bit and was like, you know, Richard Sherman isn't in this locker room anymore. His opinion doesn't really matter they, you know, they've got, I'm paraphrasing here, but they've got issues in Santa Clara, San Francisco, whatever. And he was all about like, this is my defense. Now this is Bobby Wagner, Wagner and I's defense. And, you know, coming off a super cool, amazing defensive performance. I, that was such a weird game because I expected the offense actually to really dominate, but um, obviously that didn't happen as we know, but it, it, it's really cool. I think, I think we have to give a little bit of credit to Frank Clark coming into the NFL. There was a lot of skepticism, 
you know, around him for many reasons, many valid reasons off the field and maybe some on the field too. But um, it feels like he's really grown into a leadership role on this team. And, you know, he's mostly done good things. And I, I think he's a player to be really excited about. And personally, I hope they can keep him around with an extension. Yeah, Pete, Pete came on this week and was saying there's no way they're letting Frank go. I mean, he was pretty he was pretty clear cut in his comments about that. Um, I think they're talking about Brock and Salk, and um, they're asking him about that, and he's like, "We're not letting Frank go." So, I, I think that's a that's a certain sure thing. Um, you know, as far as in the game, I come I come back to the comments that he made. Um, but as far as in the game, I was shocked at how good the defense played. Like from the very first snap. Um, I don't know if you guys remember it, but there was a run play and they stuffed him and the entire defense, the entire defense piled on. There was guys jumping on the pile, like all 11 guys. And I looked at my, my friend, I was like, sitting next to me, I was like, like, we haven't seen that for years where the Seahawks really swarmed to the ball and showed that kind of enthusiasm and, and like swagger kind of and how they were going to protect their house. And so that was, that was a great start. And then, Give credit where it's due. Like Ken Norton and Pete came up with a twist on their defensive philosophy. They they were playing different coverages. They were playing different personnel, playing six DBs, seven DBs. And this is a team in Minnesota that passed like 70%, like the number one percentage passing offense in the NFL. Um, and they came up with a game plan that I think really confused Kirk Cousins and had them like scuffling. Adam Thielen didn't even have a target in the first half. Like it was, I mean, that to me was shocking because this defense has been anything but shut down for the last, you know, four to six weeks. Yeah. If you remember our show last week, one of the things I brought up was that Minnesota has a really bad offensive line. And I did think there was an opportunity for Frank and for Jaron, but you're right. Ken Norton and, Pete really did a good job in that game, just doing some different stuff. I remember on the first third down of the game, they had that 7-DB look that you probably haven't seen since Pete's first year. And that, compl that completely confused Kirk Cousins. Uh, the biggest thing for me was Shaq Griffin. Shaq Griffin, maybe he can only play on Monday night or something because his two Monday night games this year have been ridiculous. The Bears, game, the Bears game, he was – this game might have been better just considering the quality of competition going against Thielen and Diggs. He was fantastic, and – Having Kendricks back made a big difference. Unfortunately, that's a short-term thing. Um, Kendricks, Bobby was great. If you watch the film on some of those fourth down stops where Frank knifes through the defense, Bobby just tackles Dalvin Cook, or it was Latavius Murray at will. He was fantastic. Uh, you you kind of only saw more of an edge rush coming. Again, it might be the bad Minnesota offensive line. It might be Kirk Cousins being finicky. But, yeah, the defense played with a different kind of energy that you have seen all year. And, again, I'm still – trying to figure out if that was progress or that's just Minnesota's O-line kind of playing into what Seattle's strengths are and it's the speed off the line and Frank Clark. But I don't, yeah, think, they, I don't think you can say that. That wasn't my interpretation. I mean, definitely the Vikings offensive line is crap. We talked about that before the game and that obviously contributed. But I think you have to give the, the coaches and the players credit for the way they played. Um, they did come in with a different game plan. And the players, I think someone in the chat pod just said this, and they were right. Someone uh, on defense said that they knew the plays that were coming. That they like they were that prepared. That they knew 
the offense for the Vikings. We don't usually hear that from the Seahawks. Um, and then Shaquille Griffin, a great call out, Jeff. I mean, I've been pretty hard on him this year. I think he's taken a step back. He was great in that game. You know, like there was a play late in that game. And I think it was the one before the they forced the field goal. I'm not sure where there was a, a pass to Adam Thielen and it was for a third down and he was wide open and Griffin broke on the ball and like dove and, and knocked it away. I think it was a second straight deflection or something like that. That's a, that's a great play. And it's not a play we've been seeing. We've not been seeing him make a play on the ball like that. Really. You're right. Since the Chicago game. So um, huge kudos to him. Um, and another piece that I want to call out is the tackling. I don't know if, I don't know if it was coming through on TV, but Dalvin cook was like a hair away, a fingertip away from breaking like probably six or seven runs in that game. And he had no one in front of him. And there would be Shamar Steven would grab him by one arm or like it was different guys. Like Trey flowers had a great tackle on the edge. Um, like there was a number of guys that stepped up and uh, the tackling had not been that good for a while. So uh, yeah, I don't think you can say that's the offensive line either. Fair. Um, I think McDougal had a really good game too. Yeah, uh, McDougal had the breakup in the end zone on Kyle Rudolph on the fourth and goal. Uh, Brian Baldinger did a video today purely focusing on McDougal's tackling in the game and his just ability to diagnose plays. He's really developed this year, and he's kind of he was kind of slowing down from the beginning of the year in the last couple of weeks. That game in Minnesota, if you watch the film of it, he was fantastic. He was covering receivers. He was covering tight ends. He was playing in the box. That was as good and complete as a game as he had all year. Can we stop on Michael Kendricks for a second? Yeah. Obviously, the news, yeah. you know, broke today that he broke his tibia or something. So basically, broke his leg. Um, do we know what quarter he got hurt in? Because I thought he returned to the game, or or was I wrong about that? That is a great call out, Evan. So not only for those of people that didn't hear the news today, Michael Kendricks, Seahawks linebacker, who just came back this last game um, from suspension. Uh, was put on IR, season-ending uh, surgery to, to repair a broken leg, broken tibia. And I heard Brock and Salk interviewing Pete after the game, and he, Pete made a point to say that Kendrick's hurt. He thought he hurt his knee, but that he was just a tough guy and he wanted to come back in, and he just really was a warrior, and he kept playing. So he thought they, they did not know it was a broken tibia at that point, or they wouldn't have let him back in. Or maybe there could be controversy. We'll find out. We'll probably never know the truth. But maybe he didn't have one and then kept playing on it with an injury and caused it. That's possible too. But in any event, Kendricks played through pain and played through injury and played pretty well. And uh, I'm bummed. I really was excited about how he could upgrade that defense because there's really no other options to upgrade that defense. And as well as Austin Calitro has done relative to expectations, He's like a, you know, we talked about it last week. He's a, a four, four and a half out of ten at linebacker. And Kendricks was at least a six and a half, seven kind of player. So um, we'll see. Maybe KJ Wright still has a chance to come back. That that's that's Pete's left that door open. It'll be interesting to see what they do with Kendricks, considering you know his potential imprisonment for you know the it wasn't money laundering. I think it was insider trading. Yeah, so I wonder. I, I believe he's just on a one-year deal right now. I wonder if they would 
consider extending him and then retaining his rights for when he got out of jail. That's just me hypothesizing, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, so defensively, I imagine everyone, there's a lot of positives. They probably should have had a shutout. The one touchdown came in garbage time. Offensively, it was kind of a mixed bag. I don't know how you guys felt. For me, there was a lot of things I liked and a lot of things I didn't like. From the like side, I thought the run game looked fantastic against probably the best front seven they faced this year. I thought the I thought Dwayne Brown specifically looked amazing getting out in space, controlling the line of scrimmage. Sheldon Richardson was a complete non-factor, zero quarterback hits. Uh, Chris Carson looked great. Penny had a couple big runs. They were just able to run the ball consistently. Russell got into it. The passing game was tough. There was a lot of things. It seemed like Seattle was just running nine routes all game, those deep routes, and they weren't even trying to go intermediate. And Minnesota did a good job covering it up, but maybe it's the loss of Doug Baldwin. Maybe it's not, but they didn't take any shots at the intermediate level of the field. And they left, they didn't leave a ton out there, but they just, their, their game plan was pretty bizarre because they didn't match the play action with the run game. And that's kind of one of the reasons what do you have the run What game. do you mean by that? I, I saw tons of play action in that game. But I mean, they only were kind of ran the same route, that deep route. Uh huh. They didn't well, run it to the intermediate route. They hit Vanette once. They hit Fant on it. Yeah. But they 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 were, maybe it's a thing that Doug does well well, and the other receivers don't. But the intermediate part of the field was open consistently because they were working so hard to cover the deep ball. And it didn't seem like they adjusted very well in the passing game. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I thought they looked very much like the same blueprint they've been using in, in most games and Minnesota is a better defense than they've been playing in most games and their their coverage is really good Holton Hill had to sub in for Trey Waynes Holton Hill's a, a rookie for them and I thought he played a really good game even the plays where people are like oh David Moore should have gotten two feet in <laughs> those are tight coverage plays those aren't like easy gimmies and there were there was maybe one play where I saw Tyler Lockett running open. It was a play that Russell missed him for, for some reason, and some people are saying he had already moved off of him to another receiver. But um, for the most part, the Vikings just did a really good job. I mean, Anthony Harris and Harrison Smith arguably are the best safety tandem in the NFL. Um, you know, I mentioned last week Anthony Harris is the, the new guy, the young guy that most people don't know. He came into this game allowing a passer rating of 9.4. <laughs> 9.4. So, I mean, he's really, really good. Um, so, I, I agree with you. I don't think I saw adjustments. But let me ask you guys this question. I'll start with you, Evan. Um, do you think that this Seahawks, the Seahawks could have won this particular game if they didn't have a running game, but they did have Sean McVay as coach? Yes, Absolutely. Why? Because Sean McVay is brilliant offensively. Like, I, I there's no. Are you kidding me? Like, I, I, are we really comparing like Brian Schoenheimer and like Pete Carroll to Sean McVay offensively nope. right now? Nope, that is not the question. Question is, if they didn't have a running game. Yeah, no running game. But they had Sean McVay. Okay, actually, I retract my answer. I'm not sure. Because that de- I, I think I'm underrating that defense a little bit. That's what I think, dude. I, I And I've been thinking about this a little bit. I came into the Monday night with really high expectations for the offense, but I've been wondering if I've been underrating the Vikings defense a bit. How about you, Jeff? 
Same question. Um, probably not in the fact that I think without Doug in the lineup, I don't think Seattle maybe has the receivers to run that kind of offense. And if you saw, there was almost no separation. If you eliminate the run game from that, as good as Minnesota defended, they're even easier to defend. With Tyler Lockett, who's a great downfield separation guy, but with Jerron Brown, David Moore, who's a, who's a great player but raw, and Malik Turner, Ed Dixon, Vanette, I don't think you can run that McVay offense. I think well, the McVay... So you know what's an interesting comparison here? Rams, Bears. That's so, why I'm asking, dude. Rams, you're, you're, Bears. I'm, I'm leading you into that. And why is that relevant, my friend? It's relevant because Gurley sucked. They had no running game. Well, actually, I don't know if it was Gurley that sucked. It's, something sucked, so their run game sucked. And they sucked. So maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe Sean McVay wouldn't win that game, but... Yeah, the, the point the point there for me is Bears defense is really good, right? Um, I think we all know that we've seen it. And when the Rams Rams offense is really good, I think we all have tons of respect for Sean McVay. I think we've we've talked about it. Like Evan, you were at the game with me when we just marveled at how many players were wide open and how easy of a game it is for Jared Goff. You know, he's not thrown into tight windows almost ever, but when it counts. In the playoffs, when you start, you don't get to play the crappy teams and the games get harder, then I think you see that. I think that Bears-Rams game is really instructive, right? The Rams offense all of a sudden wasn't able to get wide open plays. They weren't able to have comfort. Jared Goff was struggling and making some just bonehead Jared Goff-esque plays um, that I think, is, I think is his true nature as a quarterback. Back when he doesn't have someone like McVay scheming for him to have wide open throws. And I think the Vikings are not the Bears, but I think the Vikings are a really good defense. And I think if you had Sean McVay controlling the passing game, but you had no run game, I don't think that they, I, I, you know, I don't think that they win this game. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm harping on this is because this was a pretty interesting game for the Seahawks. I don't think they could have won this game any of the past two years. Even with more of the Seahawks defense back, I think in games when Russell Wilson, there's no way for him to pass, and it's just like he's having an off day, the defense takes him away. I don't think the Seahawks have had a good chance to win those games. And they piled up over 200 yards rushing against a really good running defense, too. So I think that's re- it was really encouraging to see this Seahawks ha- offense have a part of their identity that is so far been pretty agnostic of what defense they play against. They've been able to run about against just about everybody other than really Carolina um, of late. So I'm kind of curious if we can head back to the uh, Frank Clark comments, because there's a lot of, there's a couple of things that came off of that. So one uh, for people that didn't hear again, Frank Clark made the comments after the game that this was no longer Richard Sherman's team. He should focus on the 49ers. They got their own problems. Um, he said things that there was like a cloud hanging over the team um, since 2015 after the Super Bowl and feels like that's finally lifted. I, I might be missing some other key points. But beyond that, then you had Brock Heward tweet um, basically something along the lines of, 
I hope the NFL is paying attention that this is like great coaching and, you know, uh, this is a great Seahawks team and it's free of these, these older defensive players that all they cared about was making money and, and themselves and their, their fame and fortune. Am I getting that roughly right? Yeah. Yeah. And then Michael Bennett responds to Heward's tweet and says, I wish you weren't so negative. Uh, Cliff Averill comes out, you know, and has his own, um, you know, subtweet about what Brock Heward said. Um, I think uh, Stephen Cohen, maybe, of The Athletic came out and was like, look at people who never stepped on the field making comments about Hall of Famers or things like that. Anyway, it got ugly. <laughs> it got ugly, dude. So what, where do you guys fall in that whole you know, where, who do you feel like you're siding with? Um, what are the sides that kind of emerge for you? Evan, why don't we start with you? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think my first take number one, and I'm a hardline stance on this. It's completely inappropriate for anybody, absolutely anybody to call out any player, any, anybody who has a job for wanting to maximize their income. That, that, that's a joke to me. That's a joke. We all work to, you know, upgrade our lifestyles, support our families, all that stuff. Anybody calling out any player, especially in a limited career window, like, you know, the National Football League where players really endure so much abuse on their bodies, I think it's completely inappropriate to call out players for maximizing their income. Um, now, when it comes to credit, taking credit and making things about them, you know, making themselves bigger than the team – I think that's fair play. Uh, I think that's different than the money issue. Um, I think I think the whole Michael Bennett, you know, Brock Hewitt conversation was a little weird because I don't think Michael Bennett was necessarily the player that Brock was originally talking about. I think Brock was originally talking or talking about Richard Sherman. At least he was he was probably thinking of Richard Sherman when he was tweeting that. I, I don't think Michael Bennett deserves to be in that same conversation. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of things that, you know, didn't go Sherm's way the past couple years, and obviously a lot of controversy around that. But overall, it's kind of a kind of a, kind of a sad situation. You just kind of you don't you don't like seeing that. You know what I mean? It just kind of sucks. Where did you come down on it, Jeff? Well, I'm gonna start. I'm a big Brock and Salk listener. And even though I live in Toronto, I listen to their podcast almost daily. And the one thing about just the back, the context of it, the MMQB article and the SI article really rubbed those two the wrong way. And those two have been really harsh on those players since those articles came out, kind of the takedown of what happened in the Seahawks. Salk was the one kind of pushing that boo Richard Sherman thing. He was the one kind of bashing any Seahawks fan who wouldn't boo Sherman just if you listen to those guys consistently, that comes up all the time. And I do. And so when the Seahawks won the game the other night, Brock, sometimes when you get a little too cocky as a fan, as a person, you sometimes like to brag and you sometimes like to take digs. And he kind of was kind of taking a kind of bragging about Pete and bragging about the team and took an, kind of an unwarranted shot at some of those other guys who were kind of thinking it's all about me. The team's going to fall apart, the Titanic. They've been making reference to that Titanic comment all year, and every time the Seahawks win and get closer to the playoffs, these guys' heads get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think that was just kind of like the world's colliding there. 
and blown up. And yeah, I kind of also see that Evan's saying that Bennett, I think something happened with Bennett behind the scenes that we don't know about. I know that book story came out. Everyone kind of takes like funny shots of that, but I think there was more going on with Bennett behind the scenes. And I don't know if he was a disruptive factor, but he played, he played his ass off when he was here. He was a defender of Pete, defender of Russell. So I think more went on with him behind the scenes that maybe Brock has information to, but yeah, I just didn't love the, the shot. I think he has a point and I think it all comes back to those articles. Mm -hmm. and I just thought the comment that Bennett was really not fair. Yeah, I feel like I've, uh, I kind of empathize with a lot of sides here. I mean, I've definitely found myself in keyword shoes, Brock's shoes, where you, you tweet something out. You feel, you, you like, you've been carrying something around with you for a while. You're sick of seeing all these mentions and all these people who are taking one side and you feel like you know something different and you finally just decide to let it out and, and put it out there. And then you realize it was kind of ugly. You know, it was an ugly thing to say. Um, I don't think adding that into the conversation really improved anything. And in fact, it ends up reflecting kind of poorly on him because it just comes back. It's like, then who are you to say that? What does this say about you? Um, you can't, he probably can't say the things that he knows that were shared in confidence that he is helping him feel this way. He also may just like dislike that style of player or that style of like self-promotion. It's not who he is. And, he more maybe more humble and quiet and the way Russell conducts himself. So there's a lot of factors at play there. I, you know, I just think this is a totally bullshit narrative out there that, that, um, you know, that the LOB, that the defense is what took this team down. I mean, we, Evan, your tune's a little bit differently, uh, different now, so it's not quite as hot of a take uh, of a discussion right now. But, like, you know, I've seen folks that are just, look, that, that defense got us, got the Seahawks to the height that they, they reached as much as anything else. And Russell Wilson was absolutely a part of it. So was Marshawn Lynch and even Tom Cable uh, was part of that, Evan. So, uh, I just don't see any reason to spend time tearing them down and talking about what they did wrong. I'm super happy with the, the height that we reached and having a team like that and having a defense, which I think is the best of its generation. Um, so, you know, I, I wish they hadn't gotten injured more than anything else. And yeah, I wish they maybe would have made some different choices that would have allowed it to last a little bit longer, but you know, for the most part, those guys did everything they could possibly do between the lines and outside the lines to get the Seahawks a victory. And, you know, I, I don't really fault them for it. It's, so. I, comp I completely agree with you, actually. It's a weird conversation just because we have, like, such a young, new, exciting team with a kind of a newer identity. And it, and I, I loved what Will, William Cornell, Rain City Series, tweeted either today or yesterday where he – tweeted that the winning of this team just felt feel it feels pure it, it, like like the hunger the enthusiasm in the games you don't feel like super 40 super bowl 49 is hanging over their heads it just feels pure like winning is pure and this is not something i feel like we've felt in, in a few years and it, it, it's just like why are we still talking about the legion of boom like, uh, I'll, I'll tell you why because sherman's comments before the 49ers seahawks game about Russell validated those articles that came out and it that's what did it for so many of these guys. 
everyone thought it was Sherman behind those articles. And I think these comments kind of validated that thinking. And it just was a sore wound. I'm sure Frank took offense to it because he seems to be a big Russell Wilson guy. And that that's why. That's that's the answer. Well, but so I agree with you, Evan. We, we talk about the past a lot on this pod because there's been some pretty great recent past. But, dudes, this is – I mean – what was the name of uh, Josh's video? We were freaking eight and five. Like, yeah, let's take a cock. Let's take a minutes to celebrate. That. I mean, it's it is amazing. Um, and- Who was right? Who was right at the beginning of the season? The Seahawks are going to the damn playoffs. Oh, ha ha ha! Evan, you're so wrong. You're crazy. Going to the playoffs. Ninety nine point eight percent chance. <laughs> Sorry, had to have my moment. Uh, yes, you just broke the internet. Thank you for that. Um, uh, I expect I expect some clips of that to show up tomorrow. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I I find myself asking a couple of questions, like, how is this team doing it? How are they doing? How are they so fun? How is this team so fun to watch? Like, what makes them so fun to watch? And then I find myself asking, like, who do I give the most credit for for this? Like, who who's responsible for doing what? I think we all agree, Evan. You can say that you predicted it, but you you are you are incredibly happy with how this season turned out. You did not see it going this way. Correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So I mean, like. What do you, I mean, where do you guys, how do you guys think this is happening? Like, what are, the, what are the things that you think are fundamental to, like, how this team is over, like, outkicking its coverage? I think it really comes down to the top factor being Mike Solari's hire and Tom Cable's firing. I, and I know this is a common cliche take, but I really think going from Tom Cable to Mike Solari and then bringing in DJ Fluker, J.R. Sweezy, and even Ifedi's evolution. That has been so, so cool to see. You know, I, I think Football Outsiders had them ranked 13th overall in terms of offense, offensive line rankings. That's something we've never had in the cable era or even close. We were like high 20s, 31, and 32, even a couple of years. So, you know, we, we talked about it, Brian. I went back and listened to one of our podcasts in, in August where we were like, hey, just give Russell like an average offensive line. Give this offense an average offense. You will be blown away by what they can do. And this offense has been pretty good this year. Their red zone offense has been insane. So um, it's just super cool to see. I, I really think it all comes down to the offensive line, you know, the trenches up front. It's something we've been struggling with for like the past eight or nine years. And it's really gratifying to see. How about you, Jeff? Like, give me your, give me your top three. Um, and Evan, you have a chance to think of your other two. Your top three reasons why the Seahawks are overachieving. I'm going to double down on what Evan said. I think offensive line by far. I was I was cautiously optimistic about them going into the year. When that Albright tweet came out, I remember getting into it with him and some others saying the offensive line will be fine. That was before they got Sweezy. I just thought between Dwayne Brown and Britt, that was enough to make them fine. I know they're 13th. To me, they're a top 10 unit. They, the way they're handling these fronts that are really good and the way they can keep a defense off balance, like in the run, that, that's the first scoring drive they had against Minnesota. 
I know they ended up only getting a field goal, but the way they kept that defense off balance, they look phenomenal. And the, the amazing thing to me isn't just the starters, it's the depth. Mm. You got like Fant now who's playing, I think, 30% of the snaps, Baldinger said today. And he looks like a pro out there. And the way Jordan Simmons has stepped up. And Thank you. Jordan Simmons has been a godsend. Before you lose one guy and you have some of the guys we've started in the last three years. Jordan Simmons, is when he's played, they're averaging like 250 rushing yards a game. And then you have Posick as, a, as your, what, eighth lineman now? He can play five positions and he's got his flaws. But if he's your eighth lineman and you got five good starters, that's so much. Like, Baldinger called it one of the greatest one-year turnarounds he's seen up front in NFL history. And the fact that you guys have, to me, I don't know if the stats bear this out. They look like a top 10 line. And it, yeah. And it's just they're not good at one thing. They can do the power run game. They can do the they can do zone blocking. They can do the pass pro. We knew that Russell with a good line would be great, but when you add all those components, you couldn't have seen this coming. There's no way. You couldn't have in the right mind saw this coming. So to me, that's number one. What are your other two? Um I'd say that what Pete Carroll's done with the locker room. Oh and, boy. I know, I know. It's I, it's Keep not going, quantifiable. Don't let him shame you. It's, Keep going. Well, it's not quantifiable. You'll never be able to prove it. But having everyone on the same page and going in the same direction with a clear identity, to me, that's one of the biggest ways you judge a head coach and one of the biggest things a head coach does. And if you look at the, what the locker room was like the last couple of years with the infighting and everyone trying to take credit and the offensive line that was crumbling and guys yelling at coaches on the sideline, I think having everyone on the same page and kind of knowing how they are and since week we lose you, Jeff. Oh, we lost Jeff for a second. All right. I can finish my two if you want. Me. Well, we locker room. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. We, we lost you for a second. Okay. Am I, am I still here? Yeah. yeah. You're, we think you're still there. And the third one, I'd say Tyler Lockett. I'd say yep. you couldn't have imagined nine touchdowns at this point, nine, maybe nine touchdowns at all. Having that kind of guy to pair up with Russell's play action pass, especially in a year where Doug got hurt, that's made a world of difference because having that deep passing game mixing in with their multi-dimensional run game, that's Pete Carroll football, and it's, it's a huge way. It's just Russell's best strength is the deep ball, and having a guy who can pair with them that can separate like that they lost Paul Richardson. They lost Graham. Everyone thought that would haunt the team. Lockett's been has more touchdowns this year than Paul Richards' entire Seahawks tenure. <laughs> he does. I Maybe know. Eight touchdowns. I know. So that's for me, number three. All right. All right. What about you, Evan? You got your other two? Yeah, I got my other two. Because I'm going to go on a long tirade here. So you better get your two out before I my go off. My second one is Russell Wilson. I know we're coming off a really bad Sunday night or Monday night football game with him. And I actually thought he played really poorly. I thought he missed some really big throws, but he's mostly had an insane season. You know, we don't win that Panthers game without him. He's won tons of games for us this year. I, I think if you don't have, I think if you replace Russell Wilson with like, I don't know, Andy Dalton or something, I think this team has like four or five wins. I, I, I think you cut it in half. So I think that's where we're at in terms of my number two spot, Russell Wilson. My number three spot, it's John Schneider. 
And I'll ask you guys this question. I think there were three major moves that John Schneider made this offseason that completely changed the game this year. Number one, DJ Fluker. Number two, J.R. Sweezy. Number three, Bradley McDougald. All three players have played major roles this year. Major roles. They are key cogs in this machine. I want So let me ask you this. Take away those three players, replace them with average replacement players. How many wins does that change with those three players gone? McDougald, Fluker, and Sweezy? Oh, I'd say that's probably at least a three-win swing, if not more. I completely agree. I think I think when it comes to the whole identity piece, like Fluker and Sweezy are huge, and Bradley McDougal has been ranked as like one of the top safeties in the NFL this year. And John Schneider, also Matt Thomas, their cap guy, signed him to a three-year deal for like twelve million dollars, like what er, less than what Earl would want in one year, like. Yeah. That's insane. I, I think that contract is Lockett in there too, no? Yeah. Well, the, the only reason I didn't throw Lockett in there is just because uh, he was on the last year of his rookie deal this year. Yeah, so yeah. he would have been here regardless. But I think, you know, here's what I got wrong. I thought the Lockett extension was a little too much money. And, you know, 99% of all people thought that contract was absolutely awful. That contract is probably below market value by a lot right now. It's currently ranked like 21st in the NFL in terms of, you know, average money per year. Give it a couple years, two years down the line. That contract would probably be ranked between thirty and thirty-five in terms of APY. So I never got why there was such a freak out about the Lockett thing, other than people that just didn't believe in it. he was going to come back from the injury. But given the cap escalation, that essentially works out to like an eight million dollar a year deal from a few years ago when the cap was lower. And and I don't know. I think. Lockett got paid like a number two receiver, which I think he absolutely is a qualified number two receiver. So, I mean, I think you guys hit on it, so I won't, I won't, I won't pile on too much. But hundred percent, number one um, thing is definitely offensive line and Mike Solari, and specifically, I think a lot of people overemphasize it's the pass blocking. It is absolutely the run blocking. Um, you know, I went over this with you last week, Jeff, and I'm going to say it again because I still don't think people get it. Last year with Tom Cable, the Seahawks offensive line had a 20th, were 20th ranked in QB sack rate, 20th. Um, this year, they're 29th. I think they might have even gone down to 30th. They've actually gone backwards in sack rate, so sacks per drop back. Um, and from a pass block uh, win rate, which ESPN does, they were 11th last year for the offensive line. That really isolates the offensive line's blocking ability. Um, they were ninth this year going into the Minnesota game. So there's been minor improvement there from that perspective, but not worlds different. But if you look at the, the, the run game, it is completely different. It is a completely different run game. We even heard it from the running backs early in the season that they have more holes to choose from. They have more options of how to get their yards. And I think that has been – you cannot overemphasize how critical that has been to this team. And for me, that's the second thing is, is the run game. And the, the, you can credit Solari, but you have to credit Schottenheimer, who's calling plays. There's not many play callers who's, who are willing to call 53% um, you know, of their, their plays um, to be runs um, in this day and age. He's willing to do it. You have to credit Pete for actually going to Schottenheimer after week two and saying, this is not our identity. We're getting back to our kind of football, and we're going to run the ball. 
and Schottenheimer agreeing to his credit and them doing that. I mean, I, I think people forget Mike Solari was, was the offensive line coach for weeks one and two, and it was not just Fluker as the difference. And it was not just the fact that they were playing Dal uh, Denver and Chicago. Dallas is a damn good defense. Um, you know, Minnesota is a damn good defense. They've played good defenses, and it was a change in how they were calling the game. So I think that's was huge. Tyler Lockett's been huge. I think the seventh round from 2017 has been huge. David Moore and Chris Carson and what they've been able to contribute this season relative to what you'd expect from second year, seventh round picks, I mean, is, is outstanding. Um, you know, I think George Fant's a great call out. That guy, you know, missed most of that, almost the entire season. He missed basically played a couple snaps of a preseason game and, and was out. So, um, yeah, it's it, it goes across the board. I, I think um, uh, a lot of pieces there, but honestly, Evan, when you get down to it, the person who's most responsible for the Seahawks being eight and five instead of being much worse is Pete Carroll. That's a complete joke. You are wrong, and let's hear let's hear how wrong you are. Go ahead, tell me tell me why I'm wrong. I'll tell you, Pete Carroll's not a top five reason this team is currently they currently have eight wins. It's not. It's not a top five reason. Okay. No, oh, I'm serious. I I want to backtrack my take though because I don't want to come across as too hot. Number one, Pete Carroll's really good. Really like Pete Carroll. Love Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll's fun. I like Pete Carroll. Number two, Pete Carroll. I'll say it again. Is good. Number three, he's not a top five reason the Seahawks. No, he's not a top three reason. Sorry, he's not a top three reason the Seahawks are being successful. I've already backpedaled from five to three. No, I I got my wording messed up he's he's a top five reason i, I put him at probably number five but so how would you grade his coaching job this year what would you give him are are we talking like a to f type of thing yeah yeah a to f what would you give him maybe like a maybe like a b b minus and what do you evaluate that on i think you have to consider everything from you know one thing is like like head coach dude he plays a role in everything, especially at the Seahawks. Like he controls personnel. You know, he has the final say on roster. You know, he fired Tom Cable, you know, fired Bevel, fired a bunch of coaches, brought in new coaches. So I think you have to include him in the credit there. He's a motivator. You know, he's a, he's an identity set setter in terms of the culture, you know, what they're trying to do on offense, on defense. So I think he kind of has hands in everything. Um, I just, I don't think my take is hot by saying that I don't think he's been a top three pivotal factor for this team this year. I really don't like, and, and, I'll, and, and, it's, and I go back to the three I had it's Russell Wilson, Mike Solari, the offensive line and um, John Schneider, the moves he made this off season. And, and I, I actually agree with you, Jeff, though, this is super hard to quantify. Like there's no way to completely 100% reasonably measure this, but Looking at those top three reasons is Mike Solari, Russell Wilson's performance this year, which has been really, really good. Probably top three, four quarterbacks this year, you know, outside of Patrick Mahomes and Drew Brees. I can't think of anybody who's probably played better than him. Um, and then the huge signings by John Schneider. It's hard for me to look past those things. It really is. Okay. We still haven't said why Pete got a B or B minus. I, I think there were a lot. 
I think a lot of it has to do with how he started this season, to be quite honest. Those two games, and I will 100% admit it, weigh very heavily on me. I think the complete lack of identity, the complete lack of preparedness, I thought they showed up to Denver and Chicago looking like a joke. Like it was disgusting what we were watching. Like people were pissed. I forget people forget like how angry we were. We were about ready to throw Pete Carroll off like a skyscraper. Like people were pissed with Pete Carroll. I think the start to the season was atrocious. And and I think that has to be included in in um in your evaluation of Pete. I also think he's had a consistent pattern of poor um clock game management this year. There's been some really – I mean, that's not new. You know, that's something we've seen with Pete Carroll over the years. But, Evan, let me ask Let me ask you something, though. Like, I get it on the first two games. I was – there was nobody more livid than I was after those two games. And I was the one that was calling for him to be fired after those two. Like, I was – I'm a huge supporter of his. He clearly, from my perspective, was, was – had worn out his welcome. He was not even honoring his own philosophy and his own identity for the team. So, definitely get that. But the whole premise of this question is who do you give credit for getting to overachieving? Like we've reached a point in the season where this team is overachieving expectations and they started 0-2. Yeah. They're eight and three since then, Evan. So like yeah. you kind of have to throw the first two games out when you're evaluating like who do you give most credit for getting to 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 this point? If, if you're giving him the blame for the first two games, you're not giving him the credit for the, you know, for the 11 games since. I don't quite understand that. He's included in the credit. I want to be clear about that. Like, Pete Carroll has had a most – like, he's had a good year, and that's why I say B, B minus. Like, he's been good. Like, Pete Carroll is good. I'm not saying Pete Carroll's bad. I just don't think he's had a bigger, you know, influence on this year, bigger impact on this year than Russell Wilson, Mike Solari, DJ Fluker, J.R. Sweezy, and Bradley McDougal. Does that make sense? It's a much calmer take than your the one I was getting on Twitter yesterday. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I reserved my hottest takes, my extreme emotional hottest takes for our group chat. Okay, fair. <laughs> fair. Yeah. I think this is more to do with the fact that Nathan's at home waiting for another kid, and he doesn't have backup to go after Pete Carroll. <laughs> well, that's why – that's why I'm kind of framing it. I don't want to have me and Brian bullying Evan like we were last time. That's why I've been kind of asking him rather than telling him. So no. my question on Schneider is this. Schneider drafted Rashad Penny in the first round and traded away Michael Bennett for a fifth round. Is that not worse than anything Pete did in the first two weeks of the season? I'm sorry, repeat the second part. What'd you say? He traded Michael Bennett for a fifth rounder and some washout receiver. But like you said, I don't think we can fairly evaluate that situation. Okay, fair. I, okay, I, I'm asking. I'm just I'm being devil's game. advocate here. Yeah. Okay, my other devil's advocate is they just won a game against one of the top talented rosters in the league with 75 passing yards. Okay. Was that not Pete Carroll football identity? Wasn't that like perfect playing to Pete's strengths? And Yeah, no, I mean, you're not wrong. Like the defense played lights out. I think the defense won us that game. And one thing I'm super excited about is this defense. If this defense is starting to gel together towards the end of the year, they've been inconsistent this year. They haven't been great. They haven't been amazing. They've kind of like been middle of the pack. I think, I think football outsiders has them at like 15, 14, 16, something like that overall. So if they start to gel and we start seeing some good showings from them, that's something to be encouraged about. And I, I and I would say 
that directly attributes to um, Pete Carroll. Okay, so well, now we're gonna we're gonna flip this around for a second. Brian had P number one, so I want to hear your opinion. Well, I mean, first of all, you look at I think the the offensive line we talked about as the the the, the a big item here, and it was Pete Carroll who hired Mike Solari, and it's Pete Carroll who emphasized the run game. And I think there's a lot of there's a reason Mike Solari wasn't coaching anywhere else. Who employed Tom Cable for ten years? Who employed Tom Cable for ten years? Ten years? Or nine, eight, seven years, whatever. I was born like a decade ago. It was 2011 to 2017. That's a long-ass time for a really bad – We're not going to go back and – Again, no, no. The question is not about that. It's not it, – the question is who is attributing to this year's success. Yeah, yeah. Tom does not factor in at all. And I think – Tom Cable from the equation. I think Solari um, – you know, is a hire that was specifically around Pete's identity and has been given an opportunity to do that. I think he brought in Schottenheimer, who we haven't talked about because nobody wants to come out and be a Schottenheimer supporter because it, no, none of us feel that confident about it. But Russell is playing his best uh, football of his career. And we heard early on, you heard from Drew Brees about when Schottenheimer was his quarterback coach. I think Russell has his first quarterback coach in history. I think Taters, the like 90-year-old best friend of Pete that he's had around Russell since his rookie year, was absolutely – people talk about Bevel. Tater was a huge like problem. He had never done, coached a single quarterback of any meaning or any significance. So um, you know, I think that that was, that was big. But look, I, I think that when I get down to it, I look at this defense, and I think this defense is bottom third in the NFL in talent. Maybe like bottom seven in talent. They are number five in the NFL in scoring defense. Fifth in scoring defense in the NFL. And yes, it absolutely has to do with you know time of possession and limiting drives. All that stuff factors in. I don't care. This defense is so low on talent and so inexperienced for even the talent that they do have. Um, that is a, a amazing accomplishment, and that's absolutely all Pete Carroll. So I, I don't know that there's any other team in the NFL outside of maybe New England that is more a product of their coach and his philosophy, and every single decision reflects it, than the Seahawks and Pete Carroll. This yeah, is his team run his way. I'm going to double down on that. I think from just being around sports my whole life, football has the head coach of a football team has such a profound effect in so many ways. And the way what you just described, I think that applies to every team. I think if you lined up this exact roster with all the coaches that Nathan and Evan were going through yesterday, the team would, might have the same record, but they would look remarkably different. And I think the head coach just the way they design everything, the way they but Pete's skills, and I heard Matt Hasselbeck talking about this. Pete has a, like a really rare ability to kind of get the most out of a person. It's mm. it's something that a lot of a lot of his book was focused on, just maximizing individual performance. Like how many coaches would be playing Trey Flowers right now and be getting Mike Holmgren, one of the best coaches the Seahawks have ever had, would not have touched that guy. Dante Johnson or a guy like that would have been starting over him a million miles away. And I know that he's not. That's not a great example, but. I think the head coach, I think you can't ever say that the head coach is not 
the top three reason a team's performing the way they are. I think head coaches have such a profound impact on everything a team does. They just reflect the head coach. And I think last the last two years are a perfect example. Repeat on the negative. I think when the Seahawks were dwindling, I think I'll, that was because Pete had lost his way and Sherman was right. I agree. And I think every look at San Francisco, for example, when Harbaugh was there and we're pretty much the same rosters with different coaches. And the, look at the, the Rams, Rams this year. Yeah. You just leaves. And it's not like that in basketball and it's not like that in hockey and it's not like that in baseball where the manager does nothing, basically. It's all dictated by strategy and talent. Football at every level, the head coach has such a profound impact. And that's my point. I'm not even defending Pete. That's the funny thing. I just don't think you could ever say that. Hmm. So Evan, I know you got a you got a role here in, in about five. We're gonna keep going past it because we got more to talk about. But I, let, let's talk for a second. Let's look ahead. Let's let's look ahead. Um, Seahawks are ninety nine percent shot to make the playoffs. There's a really good shot they're gonna be the fifth seed, and it's looking like they're either gonna play Dallas or maybe Chicago. I think those are. Am I right that those are the two likely uh, opponents? Yes, it's almost so, certain. So. Evan, and, and, and I think that either one of those, we'd be playing away, right? We'd be playing in Dallas or in Chicago. Correct. Which team is your preference, and is there either of those teams where you feel like the Seahawks um, are unlikely to win that game? I think Chicago's a much tougher game. Actually, maybe not a much tougher game, but a slightly tougher game. Um, but I think we could beat both of them. I... I, I I kind of want a second shot at Chicago. I really do. I, I think this offensive line, this offense was a complete mess week two when we played them. I know Chicago's the Chicago, I think, is the tougher opponent, but I kind of want them. I, 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 I kind of want the hard road. I, I, I'd be excited about going into Chicago. I know it'd be cold. It might, it might be snowing in Chicago, you know, at this time of year. I think that'd be a fun game. You know, weather-wise, when you're talking about Russell Wilson and, you know, his play in weather, I think you obviously prefer Dallas, especially in a dome. And I don't believe Chicago's in a dome. No, no, no. So that would be – that'd be a fun game to have a snow, a snow playoff game in Chicago. So that's How about you, Jeff? Where, where, where's your head on those two potential opponents? Um, I'm going to go Dallas and – it's actually a tough question because Dallas has been one of the best teams in the NFL the last couple of weeks. They took down New Orleans. I think Lewis Riddick called them a potential Super Bowl contender in the NFC, who I, I take his word very strongly. Um, but I think it just comes down to what the, the weather difference. Playing at Jerry World in that indoor stadium fits Seattle, the speed game. Playing outdoors in Chicago, that's a tough place to play. Russell's playing the weather. I know the running game will travel anywhere. But I, I really jumped out at me just what I think Ben tweeted out this week. Chicago on like a DVOA scale is just worlds above any other defense. And while Dallas's defense does look pretty good, I think there's just a world's difference between the Chicago defense and the Dallas defense. And I know you can argue probably there's a world's difference between Dak and Trubisky, but playing indoors against a worse defense with a run game that can travel with Seattle, I think that to me stands out the best. Yeah, I think you, you're – you can be certain that that Chicago be favored by more points if they're going if the Seahawks are playing there than if um, they're playing in Dallas. I think I would guess Dallas would be favored by probably three. I bet that Chicago would be favored by six or more um, if we if, if we got those two. 
And here's the thing, as you look at Dallas, Dallas is the more complete team. 100% agree with you, Jeff, that if you're looking for the elite of the elite, um, uh, then, then I think that uh, Chicago's got the most elite unit on one side of the ball, right? Um, I generally believe that the best unit in football tends to be the one that wins the Super Bowl. So if you have a defense that is better than any other unit, offense or defense, then you have a good shot. I think the Seahawks 2013 defense was that. They were the best unit in football. They were better than the the Broncos offensive unit that year, which is probably the second best unit. Um, and you could argue that the Bears defense is in the conversation for the best single unit in the NFL this year. That the Saints offense is in that conversation. The Chiefs offense is in that conversation. The Rams offense is in that conversation. Dallas doesn't have that, but they're much more well-rounded. I do not respect Chicago on offense, and I certainly don't worry about Trubisky in a pressure situation. I don't – like their biggest weapon is Tariq Cohen. Um, you know, I don't think Jordan Howard's been that great. I don't think that, you know, uh, their other receiving uh, threats are that great. So I, I think that that gives the Seahawks a real shot in that game, especially because I believe the Seahawks could run against Chicago and have some success there. And I think that Russell, even when he didn't play a great game, you know, was showing that he was able to move the ball in that game at the end. He just made to, you know, that pick six was a horrible throw, bad choice. And it still was, you know, potentially going to be a close game there. So um, Dallas, you've got Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott and that offensive line. I don't know what's happening with Zach Martin after he went out that game. Um, that's a big potential injury for them but that's a really good quality offense and Russell Wilson's historically had a lot of trouble with Rod Mar Marinelli's defense um, so you know they did play him this year they did beat them this year so you have to feel better against them facing Dallas but I don't think it's quite as obvious of a choice as as most people might think no and the one thing with Dallas they didn't have is Amari Cooper and Amari Cooper's been uh a total game changer for them. I remember when the Seahawks played them, they couldn't get open at all. And that's why they made the trade. They had guys like Alan Hearns and Cole Beasley, and they had no separators at all. And Cooper's been a world of difference. And that's completely changed the team. They were, they were a team looking like a top 10 draft pick. And all of a sudden they're now a Super Bowl contender and guys like Jalen Smith have emerged on defense. And I don't think there's an easy choice. So I think, all, I think all five of the top five teams in the NFC are really, really good. And I think three, four, five, those are all very good teams. So I don't, playing outdoors is not ideal, but yeah, Chicago's definitely not as dimensional in terms of like there's high-level skill players on offense as Dallas is. I, it's just the indoor versus outdoor thing to me. That just that swung my vote. How did, how did the Rams-Bears game change your perspective on NFC playoff picture? Or did it? Um, it, it did a bit. I think if the Rams had to play outdoors in a cold weather game, they would be toast. And Jared Goff is a California kid. Gurley's from the South. They're not cold weather players. They play. He looked scared. He looked fearful. And maybe I, I think less of the Rams than I did two weeks ago. Just the way they once a physical defense that could keep up with them. They made them look scared. They wanted to go home, it looked like. And 
But the difference is the Rams are going to either pl- they're going to be the two seed. It looks like so they're going to either play at home or play in New Orleans. Maybe they could still be the one seed if New Orleans falters down the stretch. So in that setting, they're very good. But I'm not as fearful of them as I was three weeks ago when they looked unstoppable. Yeah, I mean the the Saints is the other piece here, which you know they they lost to Dallas. Dallas made them look very pedestrian. Um, and how did Dallas do that? They did it by running the ball effectively and having a pretty stout defense that, that slowed them down a little bit. Um, and then the Saints went and played Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay highly efficient passing offense um, and managed to slow them down on defense a little bit. And that was really close. Tampa Bay had every chance to win that game. So I just don't know that there's a a Titan in, you know, uh, some giant beating team um, or a giant to be beaten, I should say in the NFC. I think you could argue the Seahawks are ascending more than any other team other than I'd say Dallas might be the one that that's worth putting in that mix because Dallas is playing so much better than they had before. But I still, I don't believe Dak Prescott is anywhere near the quarterback that Russell Wilson is. And I think when the game's on the line, um, I like the Seahawks. One of the things we didn't talk about, about the reasons for their success this year, Seahawks turnover margin has completely come back and they Mm -hmm. found ways to create turnovers. And um, I I think uh, I think that's an issue. So, I mean, I look around the NFC. I, we talked about Dallas. We talked about the Bears. I still believe the Seahawks have a really good shot to beat the Rams in L.A. if they play them. I think the Saints is the one that I really have had question about. But, Jeff, I'm starting to, like, change my tune a little bit. I know this sounds like Homerish craziness. I don't think that the, the ceiling for the Seahawks is just getting to the NFC championship. And I'm not saying I think it's likely – I would say before the last few weeks, I, I would have said that there was infinitesimal, like 0% chance that they could get past all the teams in the NFC. As it's been playing out, you know, maybe it's a 5%, maybe it's a 3% chance. I don't think it's large, but um, I, I don't think it's zero. No, and I think kind of the way the top two teams have kind of looked a little vulnerable. It's a good call on that buck. The Saints look bad in that Bucks game. So I think just one to five, I think are all very, very good teams. And the way the Seahawks have just gone head to head with the Rams, that really kind of changed my perspective. I thought that first game was a fluke. Let's see, I just had a good read on them. The offensive line played great. But when they did it in LA too, and then they, by a pretty much all measure, outplayed Minnesota for most of that game. The score was much closer than it needed to be. And it's amazing we've gone an hour and we haven't even mentioned that interception at the goal line. But I think, yeah, Seattle looks like they can compete with anyone. And the best thing about them is the way they play. Playing on the road isn't that big of a deal for them because what travels in football is a run game and an offensive line. And when you don't have those things, as we see in the playoffs the last couple of years, that Carolina game stands out. If you don't have an offensive line and you're going on the road in football, it's really, really tough to win. But Seattle, with their quarterback and their offensive line, if they can keep this defense schemed up and getting better, that's a team that can beat anyone. And yeah, it's probably not likely to win three road games, but they have the skill to do it. And they ha- they've shown they can go head to head with anyone, the Chargers. I'm excited to see how they line up with the Chiefs, but they're not going to have to play a team like that. And 
Yeah, it's probably not likely, but it's definitely possible. So, um, well, one, to reiterate your point about the, the road, um, I, I think the Seahawks are one of five teams in the NFL to have a winning road and home record. Um, so, you know, and I think the other teams are all good teams like Kansas City and stuff like that. So, um, Seattle's four and one since those first two games on the road. That's a great point. Four and one on the road. They start off 0-2. Those are both road games, and, and they're four. Uh, I'm like you. I throw those games out. Uh, yeah. Uh, so play with me for a second. You know, if the Seahawks get the fifth seed, and who who would potentially be the sixth seed? Is it is it like Dallas is going to win their it's division? Probably going to be Minnesota. Minnesota. Barring yeah. Me. Yeah. So they could sneak in there. The only way for the Seahawks to host a game would be the NFC Championship if Minnesota wins their two games. Is that That's right? Not Her cousin stinks. <laughs> yeah, I was getting myself excited for a second that maybe Dallas would and, be in that spot, but no, they won't be. Um, no, it's, they're going to have to go on the road three weeks in a row. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Uh, if there's any team that could do it, this this team uh, doesn't seem to know any better than the fact that they don't they don't seem to realize that they're not supposed to be this good. So, um, man, it has been so much fun. I, I have to. I halfway through that game, I admit, I was like, turned to my son. I was like, man, this is boring as hell. <laughs> this is such a bad. Like they were just. It, it was, was ugly. It was frustrating because they should have been killing them. Uh, well, I mean, the the best part of the first part of that game was the the corgi races at halftime where were pretty funny but um i mean russell made that terrible mistake at the end of the half as you were just mentioning and it was just they just kept they had the penalty that got them out of field goal range um you know cost them points there uh it just was it was ugly and um but yet at the end of the game you walk away and it's like they almost shut them out 21 nothing like they had <laughs> Pick, you know, they strip sack Jacob Martin for, you know, it turns into a touchdown. Like Justin Coleman seems to be the guy that's going to get all the returns for touchdowns on this team over the past t- couple years. So I don't know. It's it's been um, it's been so much fun this year, and and it's just like this is what football, this is what sports is supposed to be, and I, I think that there's a chance that we're going to have a harder off season than everyone's realizing. And we'll deal with that when we get there. So I'm, I'm really focused on enjoying what's going on this year, enjoying the ride and just kind of marveling at how it's even possible. I mean, this is, this is, uh, it's hard to quantify, but it is good. I, I think this is one of the more unlikely seasons of this type that we've seen. Um, definitely in Seahawks history. And, I think it's pretty rare in the NFL what we're seeing. Yeah, and I think we need to keep that perspective. Like, I think Will, if you guys follow Will on Twitter, he was he was kind of ticked off. Kind of some of the stories coming out of that last game where there's this Pete Carroll debate. A lot of that's come from Evan. I know there's, there's just been a huge conversation. It gets to the point sometimes where it's like all of a sudden you're not enjoying it anymore, and you're you're arguing nonsense. You're going in circles, and maybe this is just us being too deep in the Twitter world, but. Yeah, we really need to take a step back and maybe not worry about who deserves credit or if Pete Carroll's doing the perfect job. Just this team's in five, and they're gonna all of a sudden everyone's talking about them as a potential sleeper in the playoffs. Like we need to appreciate that because in three games, the season's gonna be the regular season's over. We're gonna have to worry about 
a lot of stuff in the offseason, as you mentioned. And who knows what comes next? Who knows? But, so I think we, you're right. I think we need to do just take a step back and. Well, God, if, yeah. If any of you are Mariners fans, I mean, come on. I mean, just juxtapose this. Mariners have not competed for 20 years, basically. I mean, they have not made the playoffs in, I think it's been 18 years or 17 years, whatever it is. And the Seahawks are going to have made the playoffs in all but two seasons with Pete Carroll, you know, assuming this plays out the way it's looking to happen. And he's finding a way to compete even as they're reloading. So I think that's, that's huge. And we didn't get a chance talk about this with Evan, but the, the debate is that it's kind of underlying the Pete Carroll thing with him. As Evan's been kind of saying, he doesn't think that we should pay Russell Wilson $35 million and then pay Pete to, to coach him um, and have him throw the ball 17 times a game. I, I just feel like, one, the question I'm really curious about is, who decided he's making $35 million a year, 18% of the cap? He's making 13% of the cap this year. Drew Brees is making 13% of the cap this year. I think Aaron Rodgers, like, I think if you look at the cap numbers, a lot of these guys, they're 13, 14, 15% at most. But just because someone tweeted out that the rumor is Russell Wilson's expecting to make 35 million a year, I'm not sure that that's what he's going to ask for. I think that's, I think that's a, a false premise to even start with. And I do think it's fair. I've been, I, I think Russell Wilson should get paid. He should get, he's earned it. He's, he's a franchise quarterback, but I absolutely think it's a fair conversation for like, he doesn't have to take a Tom Brady deal, but, but does he have to take a 18% of the cap deal that, that really hampers the team's ability to compete? Like I think Russell, if he's going to live up to his brand, you know, and he really is about winning, I do think he would consider, you know, capping himself out at 13% or doing a type of deal where his salary was pegged to the cap percentage of cap, which hasn't been done before and would go up. And so he was always guaranteed to be paid at a certain rate relative to the cap. So I don't know. I I think it's a, I don't think it's a question we even need to grapple with right now. And I think it's just so obvious that you got Pete Carroll, all time defensive coach. You got Russell Wilson, who's, looking like a Hall of Fame-level quarterback, why are we talking about breaking them up? I, I just I – I, I think it's super foolish. That's what I'm kind of saying. We're having – there's all these hypotheticals and people are worrying about things that don't even exist. Like you're saying with the, the contract number and I was talking about the list of head coaches that could do the same job. Pete is something that you can no, never even argue. Um, I just think we need to take a step back and kind of – even just seeing Russell tweet at Josh today. I, I just think that's – Think of just like how much fun is Russell having this year? Having a bunch of guys who look at him as the team leader and having an offensive line that he loves and is helping him and having a bunch of teammates that aren't taking swipes at him and aren't questioning whether he's getting too much credit or not being criticized. We're we're missing the point here and we're focused too much. Even Evan's argument, which I thought he was gonna come out with so much fire. He backed off. It was kind of a nothing point. He didn't really make a point. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed. I was kind of ready to go for him. I kind of spent 24 hours preparing myself. He kind of backed off. Yeah. I think Nathan would have been great. If Nathan's listening, I think we need to hear from you. But I think we're wasting time on nonsense, and I think we need to just take a step back. and, like, Just for example, you used to hear about a coach in Philadelphia who couldn't manage the clock and lost in big games and lost his identity and – 
couldn't use timeouts properly, and we need an offensive innovator, and Andy Reid got replaced with Chip Kelly. And what happened? The whole thing crumbled. It, it just reminds me of – I'm not the biggest Pete Carroll guy. I think he has his flaws, just like Russell Wilson has his flaws. And Pete's not perfect. Pete's not the greatest coach in the world. But spending time in a year where they're over – and if you don't like Pete as a coach, I understand. That's fine. It's a whole different – but I think spending time on this right now is nonsensical. I just don't understand it. Well, and you don't have to look any further than the, the wake of fired coaches um, behind Pete Carroll and the Seahawks. I mean – You've got uh, uh, Ron Rivera firing coaches, right? You've got um, uh, Mike Zimmer firing his offensive coordinator, John DiFilippo. Um, you know, who else? Isn't there someone else that got fired? Yeah, the Detroit special teams coach after the Dixon thing. <laughs> I heard this on Softy show yesterday. They said Seattle plays such a brand of football, it brings out the weakness. It brings out a weak side of the opponent. You see the worst of the opponent. You saw Carolina, what happened with Cam, and there's been coach fine. Green Bay, Mike McCarthy. Mike McCarthy, that was the other one. Yep. Yeah, so there's been, like, the last four opponents have been, like, fired after those games. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do want to kind of wrap up with uh, – we did not mention Michael Dixon, and it's it's a semi-tongue-in-cheek when we bring him up a lot because, we. I mean, I've, I've been a huge fan since the moment they, they announced the draft pick. But he has been a silent, massive part of this team's change this year. This team was like bottom third in the NFL in net punting average for the last few years. They're number one in the NFL this year. He actually did not have a great game against Minnesota by his standards. Mm -hmm. But I, I saw somewhere, if you do the math, it's at least a 300-yard difference um, You know, in terms of a field position that he's been responsible for just by himself. And a lot of these things aren't coverage plays. He's kicking the ball out of bounds. He's just kicking it high enough that it, it's easy for the guys to cover it. He has been a huge, huge asset for this team, um, especially for a young, you know, defense that is not, not all the way there. Given a lot of teams, a long field to work with um, to, to have to, uh, to score. So, um, I think I think he was another – give a credit to John Schneider for being courageous enough to make that pick when Denver's laughing at him for doing it. But I, I think the Seahawks – I said it then, I'll say it again. I think that they got a Hall of Fame punter, Hall of Fame player in that pick. So any draft you walk away with a Hall of Fame player, it's a fantastic draft. And that's just one piece of that draft. I think you can look up and down that draft, and there's some interesting players. I think Jacob Martin – could end up being one of the better players of that draft. For him to show the pass rush talent he's shown as a rookie, those guys, he's going to put on muscle and weight and, and work with coaches in the offseason and develop more moves. I think he has a chance to be a really good pass rusher. Um, he doesn't get a lot of conversation, but I think he's, I think he's coming on strong. And You know, you can keep going on. You talk about Trey Flowers. You talk about um, George Simmons. We haven't even talked about the guy that isn't playing this year, and he's on the injured list. You know, is uh, uh, I'm losing his name. He's the offensive tackle from um, is it Ohio Jamarco State? Jones. Yeah, Jamarco Jones. Yeah, that guy was looking like a great tackle, and I'll tell you, I'm not convinced that Fetty's going to be the the long term answer. Still, I mean, I know he's playing better this year. I, you know, it's fine. 
I personally, if I if I had the choice, I still would consider playing George Fant um, at right tackle over or, over Jermaine Fetty. And I'd definitely be interested to to have Jamarco Jones compete for that position next year. So I don't know. I, I think there's there's a lot to be excited about, and uh, uh, it's gonna be an interesting game this weekend. We should talk about it for one minute if you can. Yeah, um, I got time. And the 49ers beat them 43-16. 49ers went in. George Kittle went off. Any reason in your mind that the Seahawks fans should, you know, should be worried about this game? I'm a little worried of just not having Doug Baldwin in. And I was talking about the intermediate game earlier in the show, and I saw Brady Henderson tweeted out a graphic. I think you responded to it of just Russell's passing numbers with and without Doug. And even though he hasn't been healthy all year, he's definitely not been the same player. The way he helps kind of dictate coverage really changes how Seattle operates as a passing unit. And when they can key on Lockett and not worry about the intermediate parts of the field and David Moore's kind of got one good route right now, that would worry me in a sense. But but again, if you still have the, the run game and the Seahawks are just so much better than the 49ers. So they should win rather comfortably. But I, if I had to identify one thing, I'm still a little worried of how they are without Doug. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm most eager to see how they look on defense. Yeah, can they can they cap recapture any of that? Because it'll be a great test. They they just faced this team. Nick Mullins threw for over 400 yards. Dante Pettis went off on this team. Uh, are we going to see the same defense go on the road and actually play better against this offense? Or I think there's some signs that Kyle Shanahan's starting to, to get through, to click with Nick Mullins, to find some plays that are working. Um, I saw some numbers with Nick Mullins compared to Baker Mayfield's numbers that are pretty interesting, like they're not that far off. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm eager to see. if, if it, it would be a really encouraging sign. People are going to – Let's say the Seahawks win as they're expected to. Most people won't think twice about it. But if the Seahawks defense plays significantly better, let's say they allow 300 yards instead of like the 480 or whatever they allowed the last time, that would be a really interesting development. Um, and we're kind of playing with house money. If they lose this game, you know, are they really going to lose both uh, both games at home to end the season? Uh, you know, I don't I don't think so. So. Um, I, th- I, s- I expect them to win this game. I think it it uh, defense is the place where I, my, my eyes are going to be. So, um, with that, Jeff, uh, any prediction on the game before we let 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 uh, folks go? Um, I still think the Seahawks win by double digits. I think I think Chris Carson goes for over a hundred and touchdown, and I think Frank Clark and Richard Sherman do not fight each other. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably true. Uh, all right, dude. Um, thanks for that. And for folks that haven't already, please uh, sign up at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash hawkblogger. Get a bunch of insider stuff. Who knows? Maybe we'll even figure out something with uh, with Josh slash Cable Thanos um, for insiders. We'll figure that out. And uh, otherwise, make sure you check out the video. It's on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash hawkblogger to check it out. Um, as he posts more, we're going to post them here. So keep, keep an eye out, subscribe to the channel. If you haven't already, you'll get notified as soon as one gets posted and, uh, guys enjoy. This is fantastic time to be a Seahawks fan. Enjoy each other. Be good to each other. And, uh, uh, let's,
enjoy the game on Sunday. Go Hawks.